On the Healthy Human Revolution podcast, Dr. Lori Marbus interviews nutrition and lifestyle medicine experts and extraordinary guests whose informative and inspiring stories will empower you with the knowledge to transform your life and health. Welcome to the Healthy Human Revolution podcast, and I am beyond honored to welcome Michael Moss. How are you, sir? I'm, I'm great, thank you. Oh my goodness, You're, I'm just so tickled to have you on the show. And everyone is very familiar with your book, The Salt, Sugar, and Fats. And I, it's just, it was such an eye-opener for me. And now you have a new book called Hooked. So can you tell us what was the inspiration to tackle this um, yet again? Yeah, it was, it was kind of from the very first question I got when Salt, Sugar, Fat came out um, from a reporter in, in London, actually. And if you recall, I tried to end salt sugar fat on a hopeful note, thinking that, you know, knowledge was oddly empowering and knowing all the tricks that the food companies played to get us to love their products and mm. become dependent on them. You know, we could use that to our advantage to figure out what to eat and how much to eat. And the very first question was from this reporter who said, but, but Mr. Moss, you write that, but isn't this stuff you're talking about addictive like drugs? And I kind of started backpedaling because, uh, you know, if five years ago you had said to me that Twinkies were as addictive as heroin, I thought you would be out of your mind. I mean, that's just that's just kind of not what I was thinking was real. And 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 so, but kind of the way he phrased that, and then something else happened, which is shortly after the book came out. I got the strangest invitation from none other than Nestle, the single largest processed food company. Yeah, I know. I thought I had tormented them, you know, like <laughs> anybody else in the book. As I recall, you know, they have the Hot Pockets brand. And I think I, I think I called oh. that a poster child for mindless eating or something like that. But here they are on the phone going, Michael, we'd love to have you come talk to you know, our annual gathering of 60 research and development officials from around the world, because mm. we're trying to do the right thing by consumers. Um, and we need you to tell us all the bad stuff we've done in order to, you know, concentrate on doing the good stuff. So, you know, I'm a little skeptical. And of course, I have to pay my own way to Switzerland because I'm a journalist. And oh, wow. You don't take anything. But but I was glad to do that because I also wanted to sort of see what they were up to. Mm. And I spoke to them. I gave them, you know, the Cliff Notes version of my 90 minute uh, salt, sugar, fat hook speech. Um, I got some polite, you know, applause. And then I spent a couple of days with them. They were showing me how they were cutting back on salt sugar fat. But, but when I said to them, you know, okay, great. I mean, you were adding so much before, it's really not that hard, right? But, but what are you doing um, to do what, you know, all nutritionists are sort of telling us to do and urging you to do, which is, you know, are you stuffing these hot pockets with broccoli rob and, and broccoli and Brussels sprouts? And, you know, I got this kind of blank look from them <laughs> because that just goes against everything that sort of ultra processed food is. It's mm. inexpensive, it's convenient, it's like, wow, in the brain, yummy. And they're really struggling with that. And so, and so I came away from that also sort of thinking, wait a minute, they're cutting back on salt sugar fat. I've been kind of harping about that for a while, but maybe there's things about these products that aren't on the label 
that are mm. driving us crazy and controlling our eating habits. And, and that became kind of the quest of Hooked, which was to pursue that question. I mean, are foods addictive like smoking and alcohol and drugs in some ways? And if so, can we learn any lessons from those substances that might give us a better understanding of what these food products are doing to us and how we can, and how we can deal with them? Mm. That, oh, there's so much there. <laughs> But I could tell you as a, as a physician for over 20 years, I have had patients tell me that it started in childhood and that they would sneak food, they hide food, they still do, they would wear wigs and go to other, you know, junk food stores or convenience stores to buy these things in the middle of the night in case someone mm. saw them. I mean, if that's not addictive behavior, I'm not sure what is. Um, yeah. It's, it's phenomenal to me that we haven't just upgraded this to a, a food addiction in, on the scale of where physicians are like, you have food addiction, do this, this, and this. Um, right. I guess. Right. It, so, yeah. Yes. Yes. No. Um, so, I mean, I, I came full circle on that, on that question mm -hmm. of whether food can be as addictive as drugs to, to having spoken to, you know, incredible researchers on the brain, um, behavioral mm -hmm. scientists, people inside the food companies. I came away realizing or convinced from them that in many ways these food products are actually more problematic more mm. habit forming more addictive uh if you will than than uh than drugs and in, in certain mm. ways for for lots of reasons we can go into the the largest one being is that is that the food products are have been exquisitely designed to sort of tap our own basic instincts. As one, mm. one of my favorite scientists said to me, you know, Michael, it's, it's not so much that food is addictive, but that we are naturally drawn toward food mm. and the companies have changed the nature of our food to make that a huge problem. Mm. Absolutely. So I guess we'll kind of just let's go back up a little bit so people who are listening can understand what would you consider the the definition, the classical definition of addiction, and then where can we see that actually fitting in with the fast food? Right. So that was another hurdle I had to get over because the food industry was saying to me, I mean, how can you call food addictive when addiction means withdrawal symptoms, you know, gut wrenching pain when you you try to stop using heroin or it means a tolerance, you know, where you need to you need to have more and more of it to get the same feeling. But over time, drug researchers realized that drugs work in various ways, alcohol and tobacco as well, so that there are some very powerful narcotics that don't don't involve withdrawal symptoms that don't mm. involve tolerance they affect us differently mm. and the real moment came for me in understanding how the definition has changed um, was when none other than the chief executive officer of philip morris in the year 2000 at the time one of the largest tobacco manufacturers in the world also one of the largest tobacco, one of the largest processed food manufacturers in North America, right? It was Philip Morris that bought General Foods back in the 80s and then Kraft and then Nabisco, the maker of Oreos and other cookies. Mm. And for decades, they, that company and the other tobacco companies just flat out denied that smoking was addictive. The heads of their companies got up in front of Congress and swore smoking is not addictive, tobacco is not addictive. Um, well, in 2000, Philip Morris completely changed its mind on that, acknowledged that smoking was addictive and in a legal proceeding, the CEO was asked, so what's your definition? And he goes, 
My definition of addiction is a repetitive behavior that some people find difficult to quit. Mm. And I almost choked when I heard that because that certainly applies to, you know, many of us and our relationship to to Philip Morris's not only their cigarettes, but their food products, their ultra processed food products. So I thought that mm. and that's the definition that I've <clears throat> carried through the book and looking at this this whole issue. Mm. Absolutely. It's interesting because I actually started the Health Human Revolution podcast because one, I, I could see patients who would do amazing things and walk away from 40 years of habits and change their diet and lose this weight, reverse these things. I'm like, well, why can't you do it? And someone else can't, <laughs> you know? Yeah, and that, that's such a huge question. It's, it's a fascinating. I just, I love to talk to people about like, why were you able to help me understand so I can help my other patients? And it, like you said, it's such an individual process. It's fascinating. Um, and the other, the other aspect of that too, is that there are people who can use heroin smoke, tobacco, alcohol, without losing control. Just one little story. I met the former general counsel, the chief lawyer, top lawyer for Philip Morris, right? At the time when they made cigarettes and Oreo cookies, he was a casual smoker. He could have one cigarette during a business meeting, put the pack away and, and not take it out, of, not have any mm. desire to take it out of his pocket until the next day. But mm. he would not go near one of his company's bags of Oreo cookies for mm. fear of losing control and eating half the bag. Mm. And so that's another parallel that you have in fooders. Some people aren't bothered. Some people in the spectrum of addiction is, is a spectrum with, with, you know, with extremes on both ends. Um, and some people can handle a bag of Oreo cookies and some can't, just like some can handle um, or aren't affected or aren't as vulnerable. And that vulnerability, of course, as you, as you know, can change from hour to hour, day to day at different points in our, in our, in our lives. Absolutely. And I really, I love that because you talk about the Philip Morris uh, gentleman in your first chapter and it's just, it really is like, Oh my goodness. It's just, and if, if anyone hasn't read salt, sugar, fat, they really should, because honestly, I have quoted so many times, you, so many of your part of the book is like, and listen to this and then try to get patients almost riled up. You know? um, but it is interesting. I, you know, I had a patient once, this one always helps me um, explain to patients the understanding of the addiction process of what they're going through with the food. And he had a cigarette smoking habit, two packs a day, a true patient of mine. And he said, I said, you know, I'm always trying to get him to quit. I was talking about the health things and all these, you know, factual stuff, which is useless. He said, you know what? One day he comes in, he goes, I've quit smoking. I was like, well, what happened? Like, what was you able to help? What was, what was it that happened that I could do to help patients learn how to stop smoking? Like the habit you did. He goes, well, my granddaughter came up to me one day. She goes, pop, pop. She was crying and just tears rolling down. And she goes, Baba, I, I'm, I'm, I'm just so upset, and just, I just don't want you to die. And she goes, she goes, honey, I'm not gonna die. He goes, because yes, sir. Yep, everybody that ever smokes dies, pop up, and I don't want you to die. And I mean, he was like physically, visibly shaken by just retelling the story. And he goes, I wow. never wanted to smoke since then. And it's wow. really interesting. So I think there's an emotional component. There's just so many parts of that to unpack with each person. But that, that always um, broke my heart to think that his granddaughter had to be the one if there was just some other way to to relay that message to someone to understand I, yeah. and, I, and that was one of the that was one of tobacco companies sort of defenses is look some people can quit just like 
that snap the finger mm. how can that possibly be an addiction and of course some people are able to lose lots of weight very quickly but boy i mean i've spent time with folks who it wasn't even the losing the weight that was the challenge it was once mm. they got down to their desired weight their entire body and brain was working against them in trying mm. to reclaim that weight and that's when the real difficulty began for them was mm. sort of sticking to their to their to their plan and their mm. their way of, of of eating you know i think that and that's the beautiful thing about at least some in my work with the plant-based diet i saw you eat as much fiber fueled you know the, the as much whole foods as you want with all that fiber and those micronutrients and I dare you to find room to stuff anything else. And so uh, <laughs> they actually yeah. do really well. And But there is a withdrawal. There, as people go, some people have headaches and body aches and just fatigue for a week to two weeks. And it's fairly dramatic in some individuals. Um, fascinating stuff. And one of the ways, and one of the ways that food is in fact more problematic, these food products um, mm. from these companies are, are, are more problematic than even heroin is that you can't just stop eating food. So it's, and, and their advertising and their marketing is everywhere in our face. Mm. And so it's really hard to get, a, get away from that. And that makes, mm. it, that makes it difficult for people, even you know, with a diet plan like yours and all that great mm. fiber and water to sort of slow mm. us down and satiate us. Still, there are times when you're out in the world and you're confronted by, mm. by that, you know, an alcoholic will not go anywhere near a bar. I mean, it's, it's just crazy to do, but we have to go to the grocery store and, mm. and, uh, and, and get confronted by these products, which are, you know, for many of us deep in our memory, going back to, yes. to childhood and those memories come flashing back. Mm -hmm. Oh, I mean, you can walk through a mall. My grandmother, I remember when I was a kid and would go through the mall and that Cinnabon, the smell oh. every <laughs> so you're talking my grandmother who i adored and then that you know this this warm and this 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 enjoyment with her and her company and that smell instant memory and instant like oh i want one like oh i do not want one <laughs> like, so yeah absolutely um and smell is gosh. one of those basic instincts mm. that the companies have been really good at developing right i mean we mm. we develop two waves of smelling as you know through our nose through our mouth smell is 80 percent of what we call flavor mm. and so the food companies spend lots of time with their chemistry people on staff developing smells for their food food products, mm. both kind of in the package, when you open the package, when you when you put the food in your mouth or the, mm. or the, or the drink, the release of those volatile chemicals and, and mm. um, smell has a powerful effect on the on the go part of the brain, especially mm. that, that drives us to act, um, you know, can drive us to act impulsively. I mean, I, that's, and that's another thing I learned about the salt sugar fabric was when I was reading about how you were describing how they looked at every aspect of the food journey from you visually seeing it to opening it to the texture, the taste in the mouth, how quickly it melted, did it was a crunch, the sweetness, too sweet, not too sweet, too salty nuts. And just, right. I mean, I was like, oh my goodness, I never yeah. thought of that, but it was like, yeah. I, it's it's devastating to see and also now we're getting children hooked and when you talked about children and they're they're looking at these young children trying to hook them the loyalty brand i was like oh ah, as a mother oh, I was yeah. like, oh, 
Oh my goodness. You know, Coca-Cola realized if they could, if they could get a Coke in the hands of kids at the ballpark when they're with their parents at the joyous moment, the Coke gets associated in their memories with that Mm. joyous emotional moment. And so forever. Mm. And so when they're in a stressful situation and they're looking for a little comfort, what are they going to think of? They're going to to, yeah. to think of a Coke, um, you know, but wow. besides, um, you know, besides um, uh, the, um, uh, the, the, the smell of the food, I mean, there's, I, I was just kind of blown away by the fundamental things that we are kind of naturally, we're, we're naturally built to like, I mean, we love inexpensive food, because, mm. you know, if you think about it, back when we were in hunter-gatherer societies, um, the goal was to have the least amount of energy expenditure to get your dinner. And so instead of chasing down an Impala, we're going to like grab an aardvark, which is an easy dinner. And so by nature, we're drawn to food that's that's inexpensive. And the food companies are all about making their food as inexpensive mm. as possible, which these days is still too much money for there's so many of us hurting financially. I don't want to make light of that. But mm-hmm. there are now big box stores selling food less expensive than Walmart. And you see luxury cars in the parking lot because people wow. get excited about a box of pop tarts that's ten cents less than than the store down down the right. street. Um, we love variety um, mm. because if you think about it, we you know as humans we're able to populate different parts of the world with the different available food and love it. You know, even if whale blubber was the only thing we had to eat, and so the companies knowing. We love variety and instinctually have have worked on that in the grocery store. And that's why you go to the cereal aisle. You're going to see 200 versions of sugary starch Mm. and potato chips, the same thing, designed to sort of fire up the brain because instinctually we love variety. And then maybe one of the biggest things they've done, too, is calories. I had no idea of it. You know, when we eat or drink something, our gut and possibly even the mouth they're starting to find has sensors that can pick up the calories, which Mm. is even more significant and exciting to the brain, I would say, even than salt, sugar, fat, because calories is life. Calories enables us to put on the body fat that we needed for so long in our history to to make our, our, our brains grow and to get through hard times to have more offspring um, mm-hmm. and, um, and, and getting back to that great quote from, from, from my scientist who said, look, it's the problem is they changed the nature of our food. That's the hallmark of ultra processed food is that they've packed in the calories into this sort of dense little package so that when you eat it, you know, the stop part of your brain, the thinking part of the brain, that the executive mm-hmm. function that says, hey, wait a minute, Michael, I think you're getting too much of that. It doesn't have a chance to catch up with the go brain. And before you know it, you've Mm -hmm. eaten far more calories than you should in the entire Mm -hmm. day. Yeah, it it literally goes offline. And for me, it's those, the Girl Scout cookies, those Thin Mint cookies. (laughs) My children won't even allow me to like even look at them. I feel like it's like, those little girls are evil, but they're so cute. <laughs> like, <laughs> but man, I, I used to have coworkers sit the entire box on my desk. I'm like, why are you guys doing this? Because I'll eat an entire sleeve <laughs> very quickly. I told it, but it melts just right. Oh, anyway, the frozen ones are right. really good. Anyway, yeah, as we yeah, speak. Yeah. So when you talk about that, we kind of mentioned a little bit, um, 
so and you were talking about the variety and um all these different things so can we talk a little bit about the memory aspect of that because i think that a lot of that also develops that right it's almost like the reward component you enjoy thinking about what you did at that moment like for me it was dr pepper growing up my grandmother had dr pepper and man it was like coca-cola are you kidding me pepsi no it's like dr pepper is our this is what we drink but can you talk a little bit about that? Could you speak to that in your book as well? Yeah, yeah, because I wrote a whole chapter in memory because I, mm-hmm. I, I was able to speak with um, a chef food writer named Paula Wolford. And she was, she was, her palate was so exquisite that if somebody was boiling a pot of water for some pasta, she could, she could tell if a different brand of salt was, was used than the one she was used to just by wow. tasting you know, the, the salty water, right? You know, tragically, she's developing Alzheimer's and her memory is fading. And as her memory fades, her smell, her taste, her her memory of food is disappearing. And she said to me, you know, food is all about memory. Um, Mm -hmm. That's what draws us to eating. And again, you know, by our nature, that's a fabulous thing. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. one of the things that gets us to eat and pay attention to food or otherwise we would have starved, right? Mm -hmm. So from a very young age, we're laying down these memory tracks for the foods, products that we're eating at that age. And, And scientists talk about something called the adolescence bump, which is during adolescence years, we're making more and longer lasting and more powerful memories than at any other time of our life. And, and that's another way that, that these food products are more problematic than drugs because, you know, drug abuse sort of spans the age of, you know, mid-teens to early 20s, but are, are and, and those memories are certainly powerful that, that you develop in the, in the course of developing a habit and addiction to, to drugs. But, Food begins possibly even when we're still in the womb, but certainly at a very young age and continues through the rest of our life. You know, I walked into that factory of Kellogg's in Battle Creek, Michigan, doing some reporting on mm-hmm. some of their products. And they had they had they were making a big batch of Pop-Tarts that, that had messed up somehow and they were dumping it into this huge vat. And the aroma came across the factory floor and hit me and instantly took me back to my mm-hmm. adolescence years as a, as a latchkey kid where I'd come home from mm. elementary school and um, pop a Pop-Tart into the toaster oven. I hadn't had a Pop-Tart since then, mm. but man, that smell, that memory from that smell um, took me instantly right back to that moment. Mm. And lately with the pandemic, right? So, mm-hmm. wow. I mean, here we thought was a chance we could really kind of get an edge on these companies. At least we were getting away from the vending machines at work, right? right? Probably the most treacherous part of the, of the, the fast food, you know, business for for us anyway, Um, profitable for them. But, but what happened is that um, the stress and the pain and the suffering of the pandemic, when we went grocery shopping, we remembered those comfort foods from our childhood and the companies were were keeping data on this they saw people buying things like pop tarts that they hadn't had since kids and sales yeah. soared and they're continuing high so that's kind of wow. a perfect sad but perfect example of what happens when we're 
under stress, and even if we've developed a better eating habits, we're still susceptible to, to being drawn, you know, by our memories back to the old habits. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And then you have the added stress of finances and homeschooling kids and all these oh. other things beyond just worrying that you're going to contract a potentially debilitating or very serious yeah. Uh, illness. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. I didn't understand. I, I didn't realize that we had, although I, I had a hint when we first um, here I'm in Colorado, when things started shutting down, you know, I'm like, I kind of have a little bit of a survivalist, maybe between my, maybe some military training. I don't know. So I was like, we got to go get a few things. I didn't buy a lot of toilet paper, but I did buy some other things. And it was funny because, you know, we've raised our family to be very healthy eaters, you know, on a whole food plant-based diet. But I was like stacking up full of, you know, really good, healthy frozen vegetables and beans and all this stuff. And then you're, you're in this long line across the, the entire grocery store. And you're exactly right. It was like Doritos and pop and all these things. And you're looking down the shelves and all, you know, all these horrible processed foods are, those are gone. But I had tons of beans and rice and stuff available to me to choose from. I'm like, well, we won't starve. Everyone else might, but we won't. Um, and I was really flabbergasted by like, dude, do you understand? We need to think about the long haul. Those, that fast food is going to be gone quick. And uh, it's just really fascinating. And it's always interesting to me when you check out the grocery store, people goes, wow, this is a really healthy grocery. You know, what you got going on in your cart here? I was like, yes. And she goes, I don't see that very often. And it just, uh -huh. it just reminds me how often, you know, it's, un it's unfortunate that someone who's choosing to eat healthy is the outlier and people actually right. notice. So. Yeah, and, and, and you noticed how flour disappeared and yeast disappeared and some of these basics. Well, yes. there was a reason, there was a reason I found out, I did some reporting on this recently, why the snack aisles were always like full of snacks. It's because the truck, the deliverers of the snacks for the big snack companies went into the grocery stores and they themselves stocked, kept those shelves stocked. So oh, they were wow. getting depleted. We just didn't notice because oh my goodness. they were concentrating on keeping those products, you know, on the shelf in front of us so we could buy more and more. That doesn't make sense because I remember sometimes if I couldn't find something, I would ask someone and I was like, hey, could you help me find this? They're like, oh, I don't work here. I just stock this side. I was yeah, like, oh, that makes sense. Exactly. You saw oh. that. Oh, that's, well, that's very fascinating. And then, oh, there's so much. <laughs> so, and then also when you describe um, willpower, can we talk about willpower and what you, what you mean when you talk about, um, give your willpower a boost? Yeah, so um, maybe we can talk about in the context of speed, which is, which is, mm. another, which is another problematic area for food. So mm. one thing I learned from researchers who studied drug and drug addiction is, is that <clears throat> the faster a an addictive substance like alcohol, tobacco, or, 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 or narcotics gets to the brain, <clears throat> the more apt it is to lose control or send you these powerful signals that cause you to, to desire and, and lose control. So speed is, is like a key thing mm. in addictive substances. Um, and I came to realize that there's nothing faster than the groceries we're talking about and much mm. of the food you'll find in fast restaurants. In fact, the whole term fast food took on a whole new meaning. And I'll give you an example. So um, there were some experiments quite a while ago where they put people, sat people down and said, we'd like to know how fast you taste sweet. So they put a dab of sugar on their tongue and asked them to press a button when they tasted the sweet. And of course, 
flavor happens in the brain, but so what happens is it's a little bit of a trick that food plays, but when it touches our taste buds, that sends a signal through our nervous system or through our, through our neurological system rather to the reward center of the brain. And these subjects, they were timing them with a very precise clocks, um, dab on the tongue. They were pushing that button in just a little over half a second. That's how long it took wow. for the sugar the signal from the sugar to go to the brain and then the brain to send the signal back to the back yeah. to the finger which could you know could have been your hand reaching into a bag of cookies right same mm. same sort of thing but um compare that to like smoking which can take as long as 10 seconds to hit the brain mm. um some drugs um, are a little bit faster but still nothing faster than than um than those taste sensations and and these food products are incredibly fast and, and the companies are all about making them faster and faster to the point where their ultimate fast food snack foods have become the fourth american meal we're on average getting you know some 560 calories a day from snack foods much of which are sort of these junky not very good for you um things because because of our attraction, because of the power of speed in canceling out our free will, back to back to your question. Mm. So I love I love these scientists who kind of divide the brain into two things. There's the go brain, which mm. which compels us to do really basic instinctual things like flee from danger and eat and drink for nutrition. Mm. Um, and then there's the stop part of the brain, typically, you know, considered to be in the frontal cortex, um, executive powers, um, willpower, thoughtful, rational thinking. Mm -hmm. And what happens with, with addiction and substances that cause us to lose control is that, you know, they ignite the go brain so quickly and so powerfully that the stop brain that wants to say, hey, Michael, I'm not really sure this is a good idea what you're doing here, mm -hmm. doesn't have a chance to wake up and put the, the foot on the brake. Mm. Um, and that's where I think where willpower sort of lies and, and also where the notion that, well, with the, the myth that, that somehow people who lose control of, of food don't have willpower you know, dies because this is not about willpower. Those cravings and those signals from their food products hit us so fast mm -hmm. that there's just no chance nobody is going to put their foot on, be able to put their foot on the brake. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Wow. And it is interesting. Um, are you are you familiar with Dr. Judd Brewer and his work, uh, The Craving no, Mind? No, I'm not. No, you I'm might, not. might really enjoy it. He's a He's an addiction psychiatrist. He's a good friend of mine at Brown University. And he wrote a book called The Craving Mind. And then he also developed these apps. Um, and that's how I found him. I had a patient um, who told me about the Craving to Quit app. It's, and he had had in his research 40% decrease in cravings by people using this mindfulness approach. And I was like, wow, okay. So then he has this one called Eat Right Now and Unwinding Anxiety, which he speaks to emotional addiction in a sense of worry and making that a habit. It was all very, it's very fascinating. But the Eat Right Now app was about food cravings and being able to step out of that, go get it, go get it mind, you know, where you turn off your executive thoughts. And um, it was really incredible to see his research. And I just love talking to him. I learned so much. 
but um, there was a, there was a, uh, just kind of going back to the mindfulness stuff and there's a quick story, which is interesting because you're, you're right. I, I truly believe that willpower is not the, it, it, we all run, I run out of willpower by 8.30 in the morning. <laughs> like, yeah, there, there's too much to do. There's, a, there's like a small amount. But there was a lady, um, her name is Dotsie Bosch, and she was a, um, she won, a, I believe, a silver medal in cycling in the Olympics. Mm. But before she um, did that, she was, she had a heroin addiction and a fairly severe eating disorder. And, you know, I thought it was wonderful. She's a plant-based athlete. That's why I originally, you know, was uh, introduced to her. But I was like, I'm actually more interested in how did you overcome your addictions? And she said, she just kind of nonchalantly said, oh, I just quit over a few months. Like, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> <laughs> hold up. Oh. She basically said she says I started working with the therapist and the therapist made me buy these blue dots and she made me put them on things that triggered my these this um this habit loop in my head. Ooh. And I know and I know Charles Duhigg wrote some of some words for you there, but I was like, you know, I love his work too. But that was just really cool. Is what happened? She goes, she made me stop. She goes, I had the choice to keep eating or do doing the habit of what I was gonna do be it vomiting, you know, with the bulimia or whatever drug she was, but I had to stop for 30 seconds and ask myself just these curiosities and curiosity as, you know, bringing the thinking mind back on. And it's a dopamine reward, apparently, even though of itself being curious about something. Mm. And she goes, after a few months, you know, at first I just wanted to, I just did, I said, like, I did my 30 seconds. She was over after a few months. She was, I just didn't want to do it anymore. And it's wow. really fascinating work. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm not surprised it took a few months because it mm -hmm. basically have a lifetime of developing the habits yeah. we don't have and sort of turn those around. I think that's one of the difficulties for people is that they think it can happen. Well, maybe they don't think it can happen quickly, but it's hard to mm. pay attention to, to your plan, your new plan for, for that, for that, for that long uh, mm. a period. But kind of what we're talking about is, is kind of this question too, like, how do we change how we value food because mm. the companies are all about imposing their value on us through the advertising and the marketing mm. and our habits. And how do you, how do you go to, you know, a Starbucks? Well, we used to go to the Starbucks, but and <laughs> see the the pastry counter, and look at those pastries from not from a perspective of wow, how great that's going to taste in the next, you know, three minutes, um, mm. the flavor and the smell and the, and the texture and the, the mouthfeel of the fat and the bliss point of the sugar. But mm. how is that going to like be in my body for the next, mm -hmm. you know, week? Or how's that going to make me look in a bathing suit in the summer? Mm. Um, and, and how's that going to, you know, what's that going to be like 10 years when I get a, you mm. know, when I, I, the heart doctor looks at me and, and, um, and so how do you change and again sort of the impulse the, the immediate gratification is right there and it's so difficult to kind of look down the road but mm. I think there may be ways we can train ourselves mm. to change how we value food mm -hmm. yeah. yeah I I have yeah absolutely there's two things that come to mind one the mindfulness approach allows patients to tap into the memories of how they felt after, like they eat well, and then they don't eat well, they don't, they have physical symptoms, they, you know, the emotional component of not eating what they choose. But the other one was I work with a lot of diabetics, 
tons of diabetics, like mm-hmm. 95% of my patients are diabetic. And I use what they call mm-hmm. a continuous glucose monitor. And what it is, it's a small device that is attached to your body. Um, and you have instant feedback, basically, on what yeah, food a is little doing. electroshock. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it's telling them what their blood sugar is doing. And I've actually worn these oh, things yeah. myself because I love being the self-scientist and end of one. Oh, like, um, but it was fascinating to me. And I, I love it because I can connect to their device and I can see 24 hours of blood sugars week on week on week. And they're saying, when I tell them this, it's like, listen, this is going to be your best friend because it's not me tapping you on the shoulder going, Mm-mm, don't be eating that. It's your body telling you what's happening. So interesting. It is a phenomenal device. Wow. Oh my goodness. It is. I, I, I was looking at this going, when I saw what rolled oats did to me, and I'm not even a diabetic, I was like, I'm going to still cut oats. <laughs> I don't want to hit 160. I'd rather be, you know, still cut oats keeps me around 135, 130. And so that was really, those type of devices are so powerful. Um, but yeah, I get to, that's that instant feedback because nobody thinks about 10 years, 20 years down the line that they're going to have diabetes, amputations, you know, losing limbs and all these things, blindness from, you know, one of the worst chronic diseases I think anyone can have, which is diabetes. Um, it's fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. You know, there, there hasn't been a lot of discussion about obesity during during the pandemic. And I think it's just a little shyness on the part of the media. And mm. because there, there there is sort of fat shaming out there to be careful of and obesity is a disease. People, you know, it's, it's better to think of that as opposed to someone being obese. But I heard mm. a doctor from 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 Boston on the radio saying that talking about it the other day and, and she was saying they're starting to see people for the first time come in for help with dealing with obesity because mm. of the pandemic, not because just by changing our eating habits is going to make us immune to to COVID. No, but because, you know, what we eat and our health kind of has never mattered more. And mm. and it's it's it's, you know, the light goes on in their head. And so now for the first time, they were able to really kind of see a potential consequence because mm. obesity is a risk factor for COVID. For COVID. Mm. Um, and, and they could see that right away without mm. waiting 10 years for consequences. And I, mm-hmm. I thought that was really, really an interesting moment. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's interesting because when we launched, because lifestyle medicine is all about helping people make better food choices, exercise, sleep, stress reduction, you know, you know, looking at your relationships and building those and supporting that. It's a really fun way to do medicine because you're not having to write scripts all the time. Medicine still has its place, Um, but you're exactly right. And there's so many people we launched literally in March of 2020. I was like, I was like, there are no coincidences, you know, the, 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 the telehealth barriers or perceived obstacles of delivering this type of care were gone and doctors yeah. wanted to work with us. Patients were coming to us and wow. it's been a, it's been a really wonderful and beautiful journey to see um, patients really regain health and be, you know, granted they came to us motivated, frightening, but you know, fear might've been your, the starting point, but then there was just so much hope came to them when they can actually turn their life around. But can we talk a little bit, you talked, there was a part of the book where they, you know, the gastric bypass, because as a family practice doctor, I got a lot of those patients after the surgery. And I would love to talk to you about that. Cause there was Ooh. one, there was one quote by one of them is like, they didn't operate on my brain. I was like, yes. So could you talk yeah. a little bit about that? That was fascinating. 
so i mean we used it wasn't that long ago when we thought sort of hunger happened in the stomach and it was sort of all about that and and back in the 60s you know the the gastric bypass you know you know was developed as a as a as a means of helping people as a last resort when nothing else was working for them to 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 lose to lose weight and so you know there's lots of different methods but basically it's as, as you know it's shrinking the mm -hmm. stomach to sort of a very small um a very small pouch and you know a number of people and i've forgotten the exact percentage now will will have the surgery well overall the surgery can be kind of incredibly successful to a certain extent people will lose mm -hmm. as much as i think on average 30 percent of their body weight which sounds great is great but if you're obese clinically obese 30 percent may well still leave you at obese and what happens is um, for a lot of people is they plateau out they stop losing weight and even maybe start um, um, gaining back a little bit of the weight that they lost and and in trying to figure out why um, sort of researchers sort of sort of settled on this notion that and realizing that the stomach is only sort of part of the equation. Mm -hmm. Cravings, addiction, hunger happens in the brain too. Mm -hmm. And the brain is sort of still getting those signals from whatever's left of the stomach or the rest of the gut that wasn't touched. Um, mm -hmm. We're not really quite sure what. Um, but people who've had that surgery, and there are some 200,000 in the, in the country every year who have it, mm -hmm. um, you know, some of them will develop the cravings that they had um, even before the, before the surgery and it becomes problematic. And there was one gentleman who said, you know, great, thank you, but the, you know, the problem is you kind of missed the mark. You, by focusing mm -hmm. on the stomach, you, you forgot about my brain. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. It's, and that's exactly right. Um, it's funny because when I get this patient, so they've had their surgery and they're done, but now there's all these consequences, right? So there's decreased absorption of certain very vital nutrients and vitamins. There's sure. scarring, chronic pain. Um, I would say 20 to 30% regain their weight back or a significantly larger portion of that. Now, I'm not saying that that's not a successful for some, but you know, you also mentioned in your book as well, as, and I'm aware of that now there are children who they are recommending this surgery for. I was like, why are we in this position that we have to recommend changing someone's anatomy because of the foods system and the, and the environment that we have? What should we do as people who don't want to be confronted with these potential serious choices because we live in this food environment that feels like we feel victim to or we don't have control what can we do as consumers what can we do as doctors or just what can we do <laughs> you know mentioning children i mean that's the first focus right is sort of mm -hmm. helping them avoid developing bad habits because it's easier than trying to fix bad habits after they're already there i mean if i was yep king for a day i would you know have every school have a garden not not mm -hmm. just to kind of feed the kids but to get them excited about something mm -hmm. maybe they've ever seen like a radish and then mm -hmm. and then you'd want them bringing that radish home and showing it to their parents and getting their parents excited then mm -hmm. you'd want their parents to be able to go in the grocery store and find a radish a fresh mm -hmm. radish and not pay more for it than a frozen pizza and so mm -hmm you know you need to kind of rejigger the agricultural system because mm -hmm. the vast majority of research and development and acreage 
is going into growing field corn and soybeans for these fast food products that we're mm. we're talking about and so little goes towards the 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 the, the fruits and the vegetables that mm -hmm. your patients are, are now eating more of and so um so kids right focus yeah. on the kids but but it's such a complex problem the food environment and again you know the the, the other way that, that and one of the things that threw me initially in looking at this question, I mean, can we really look at these products like, like heroin? Mm. Um, heroin will excite the brain. It will trigger more dopamine rush in the brain than food. Mm. But as Nora Volkow pointed out to me, she's the head of the addiction research arm of the NIH. She studied drug and food addiction. <clears throat> you know, she pointed out to me, Food doesn't have to excite the brain as much as drugs to get us to act impulsively because it's everywhere and it's mm. cheap and it's legal. Mm. <clears throat> so that's kind of what we're up against is, is kind of that whole food environment, not just these products. Mm -hmm. So is there any solution for, because, you know, we're, let's say we're parents <clears throat> and and I, I, I liken it to curiosity as a superpower, which my friend, Dr. Judd Brewer, who I mentioned earlier, coined. And it's absolutely 100% true. If you can harness a child's innate curiosity about where is their food coming from, this food journey, it tastes good. Wow, this is really cool. I can watch it and grow it. I did that. I helped that grow. Like you said, that's a beautiful way to do that introduction. But you can grow, like my kids when they were little, I don't know if your kids they had those little lima beans and they put them in a bottle and they add water on a little paper towel and it sprouted. Every, I think every child's ever done that. That was, they were so intrigued by that, but it's exactly right. So how can we, who should we be kind of digging? What, is there anything we should do? Where, should this be a ground, you know, kind of a grassroots effort? Um, where yeah, should I mean, we go? I, I would love to say that you know, there's hope that the food giants can play a meaningful role in going forward. But mm. look what they've done in the last few years. I mean, mm. under pressure from us, mm. as as for a while there, we were eating less of their junkier products. They panicked and they responded by cutting back on salt, sugar, fat a little bit. Mm. Okay, great. Um, but then they started doing things to lull us into thinking their products were okay now adding mm. a little bit of protein, you know, mm. a little bit of fiber that really wasn't the kind of fiber that really helps you in any way, mm. right? I was astounded to learn that, that so much of the fiber in the nutrition facts box of these products is mm -hmm. like nonsense. Um, mm -hmm. And um, so I, I don't think we can wait. I mean, you know, mm. food has never been more important than it is now to us. So, right. so, so I think it's on us to learn, mm. to learn what their the companies are up to and kind mm. of figure out ways to help ourselves and our, and our families. And it, it kind of depends where you are in that spectrum of mm. disordered eating, if you will, mm. whether, it's one end with you know real eating disorders and or the other end of just kind of being troubled and missing the the love and the ritual of sitting down to a you mm. know a meal made from scratch with your family and so mm. depending where you are in that um, I, th I think sort of dictates kind of how you approach it with our kids 
you know, it became wanting to have a conversation about food with them, not to preach to them, because mm. the government's been preaching to us to eat more vegetables for 30 years. And <laughs> what good is that? You know, I once did a story at the New York Times about where I went out and got an advertising agency to create a fictitious campaign for none other than broccoli, um, because one of the inequities in the grocery store is that the produce aisle doesn't get any marketing, it doesn't give any advertising, right? It's sort of up to us to like it or not, and there's no encouragement yes, by the yes. by the farmers to it's you know, and so so. But the very first thing this ad agency did was they decided was is no way we're going to tell people broccoli is healthy that will like they'll turn off the tv they're gonna like look at that advertisement you know we're gonna make broccoli fun or interesting or psychotic or you know have some real you know in fact they came up with these ads where broccoli was fighting with kale which was totally hilarious right so so it didn't the kale people didn't like that too much but but in fact <laughs> one of the lessons from the soda aisle that i got from coca-cola was that you know, they would do advertisements picking, you know, Coke would pick on Pepsi and Pepsi would pick on, pick on Coke. But, sit, you know, all boats would rise in the soda aisle. People got excited and, and soda drinking, you know, for both, you know, companies would go up when they'd come up with one of these brilliant advertisements. So anyway, that's, that's, um, that's just a, a long way of saying that, yeah, there, there, there are probably things that, that even some aspects of agriculture can do to get us to, to, to draw us toward and nudge us toward eating healthier food. You know, it's funny because before I started, when I started this podcast, it was the Dr. Lori Marvis podcast. Then it went to how to health because I was thinking the one thing that kept coming back to me with my patients and I have treated thousands of patients was like, okay, great, Dr. Marvis, you want me to eat this, but how do I do this? How do I do it on a budget? How do I make my kids eat this? How do I handle social situations? So I started creating ways and, and looking for things to help them figure out how to do that. And that really is, you know, I drove into the habit formation and your work and Dr. Charles Duhigg and all these different things. And I just trying to absorb as much as I can to be a better doctor. But what was interesting when you said the broccoli was fighting the kale, I was like, when you, I found this one study and they showed that um, in a cafeteria, and it makes sense because you look at um, cartoon boxes, right? Uh, cart uh, cereal boxes, and they have cartoons on them and they're they're attracting kids and they're putting them at yeah. the lower eye level. I mean, yeah. it, I have an MBA and I was like, hey, I get this marketing, I get it. Um, but what was interesting was they put the these little like, I can't remember if it was car uh, carrots or whatever, and they made it like a superpower and that like 40% rose and it was the same yes. carrot, rose. So yes. I created like this, these, these, I don't know if you, <laughs> these are my oh. things. All right, so this is karate kale and there oh, is oh, Melody oh. Mushroom. <laughs> I could not help but not show you, but that's Brock the Rock Broccoli. And, you know, to... <laughs> and that will work. Yes. And I, I created that is so amazing. <laughs> Cookbooks, um... everything. Oh, it's like, and it's been amazing. It's fun to, I made it a cookbook. I gave directions on if your child's two, if they're four, get them to do this. And it's, it's work. It and you're, works. you know, you're kind of getting them hooked on better eating habits. And, you right. know, people used to look at drugs as, mm. as, as grabbing us through the threat of pain, right? The withdrawal. Mm. Right. But increasingly, I think scientists have looked at it a different way. And they look at addiction and drugs as a seduction. 
that you know they're coming at us with those feelings of pleasure and that can translate to good habits too and and so maybe that's a way of sort of looking at it with better eating habits how can how can we make better dinners more interesting and seductive to mm. to kids mm -hmm. and and one of the thoughts that i had was one of the things that the food giants have stolen from us is kind of like the language of food because mm. a lot of their packaging and their advertising is you know if you look at the language it's really really interesting they're telling stories to kids those cartoon characters mm -hmm. on the cereal boxes yes. are all about sort of telling stories to kids well maybe there are ways we can reclaim language just in the way we talk about our food mm. and so um you know there was one chef who created a a, a pasta for for somebody and and they had a you know amazing night that night and did something fabulous and forever after they refer to it as the lucky pasta right mm -hmm. so i mean, just imagine if you had you know just your regular old thursday night dinner somehow got associated with one of your kids winning a baseball game or something oh. and, and and that became like the you know the home run lasagna <laughs> or whatever you want to call it so you know so maybe even something as very simple as as lang the language of food is something that we can steal back from the food companies and use for ourselves you know how in menus are very you know they talk about you know the the the, the language that they use mm. in describing menu items is a real craft and art to doing that well yeah you're not making you're not making menus for your home meals but you can you know you can talk about you can engage kids in a conversation with with language yeah so, well why can't you make menus i think that would be brilliant so <laughs> we're could. You know, <laughs> like i think it's a great idea I, i'm willing to try anything um but it's interesting i love that you're describing the language because language obviously you as a journalist i mean it is the story element which is where we connect that emotional connection yes Right. Um, which will allow us to create new memories, which again, we goes back to the, the smell and earth. Cause I, my mom, she's, um, menthol, like a Vicks vapor rub all the Ooh. time. She's always like, I don't know if it's just allergies, whatever. Whenever I smell that, I was like instantly see my mother in her Absolutely. robe on her bed. It's like, yes. oh my goodness. But maybe that's how we approach this is like you said, I, I really like that spin on like, let's talk, let's, let's start talking about food is like, oh, it's healthy for you eat it. Like, what does that mean? But it's like, what can this do for you? The benefits like, you know, advertising like the used car salesman is going to say, he's going to say, speak differently to the mom trying to sell him the Volkswagen versus, you know, the, the teenager, they're going to have a different, it'll be the same car, but they're packaging the message differently. It's just really fascinating. And as we got away from cooking, we're kind of losing some of those family stories about food, but maybe there are still relatives, you know, great grandmother made the most amazing spaghetti sauce. Let me tell you about that. And so associating, you know, lovely family members with certain foods too can, can help us develop that story of food for ourselves instead of these fabricated stories that the companies give us through marketing. Mm. You know, it's funny because I, I just posted on Instagram the other day and we're talking about memories of food and my grandmother used to cut up, oh, you can tell my grandmother was a big part of my life. She used to cut up tomatoes and serve them as a side dish to dinner. And I always thought that was so intriguing as a kid, but they were always so good because they came from her garden. I was like, oh, they're just so mm. delicious. 
And we had gotten some, uh, we use uh, Misfit Markets. They send you the, the, we're trying to help decrease food waste and they send you the rejected, but they're still organic at a 35% discount. You should check them out. Misfit Markets, great plug. <laughs> Don't get anything, but they're amazing. Anyway, I got these Roma tomatoes and I cut it up and I was like, I suddenly had this instant memory of my grandmother serving mm. these tomatoes as a side dish to many mm. a dinner. And she's, she's passed on 15 years ago. You know, it's many years ago. But I just, and it just flooded me also then all of a sudden when she was there, she'd buy all of our school clothes because my parents didn't have a lot of money and she'd bring us food when my parents didn't have enough money to put food on the table. And she was there, you know, telling me I could do something when someone else couldn't, you know, I was the first to go to college and you guys, know, all those incredible memories of just the human she was all wrapped around a slice of tomato. And I, yeah. you know, it was really fun. And I think that's right. You're, we're getting out of the kitchen and look at all those memories that are developed in the kitchen. Um, right. You know, That's instead of having a, you know, sports celebrity hawking soda to kids, developing that kind of memory association. Yeah. 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 Maybe we That's need to have this, fight. maybe have them in the, the sports, the guy in the, in the kitchen cooking with his mom and saying, yeah, this is good. You guys should be in the kitchen with your mom. <laughs> there has been an attempt to get some oh. athletes to promote produce um, oh. in a really sort of cute way, but powerful way as well. And I haven't seen much of it lately, but that would be totally fabulous to have celebrities uh, and famous people um yeah. you know promoting the things they probably eat themselves <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah. absolutely oh my goodness this is fantastic is there anything else i know i've taken up quite a bit of your time is there anything else that you feel is a really important message that maybe we didn't cover that you'd like to to share that is um you know kind of showcased in your book or anything there um, I think we did, we did cover it. I mean, the, the, the only other sort of thing at the end of the day that I, that I got from <clears throat> potential lessons from, from drugs is that, you know, these cravings and their attraction to these products, you know, built as it is up over our, our lifetime are so powerful that, remember Charles Duhigg wrote about the 3 p.m. cookie craving as an example. And I, you know, I think his method was to, you know, when it comes on, you stand up, you call a friend, you walk around the block, you know, for me, it might be like having a handful of nuts. But if that craving, what I learned from drug experts is that craving is really strong. <clears throat> you better be doing whatever your plan is at 255 mm. before the three o'clock craving comes on again, because yeah. Um, if you're really, really in the throes of that dependence on that product, like so many of us are, that go brain is going to be fired up and going, and you're just not going to have the will. The willpower is just not going to be there. It's not going to be there for anybody. Mm. Sort of, you know, raise your hand and stop yourself. And so, thinking ahead, planning, mm. right? Those where are my weak moments of the day going to be? Mm -hmm. And what can I do in advance of those to, mm. to ward them off? That may be just the thing to sort of help people, give people enough time to, to develop the, the, the better eating habits mm. that, they, that they want to do. But, but you know, for, for, for this interference of these cravings, you know, have trouble sticking with that long enough to develop those new habits. Yeah, exactly right. Just, just a thought. No, I think it's great. I, I love you identify the habit like like Charles Duhigg did. I love his story about the three pm cookie. Um, but you know, it's very true. Have you? Um, are you familiar with B.J. Fogg? Um, yes. 
Yes, the fog behavior model. So I, I again, right. I, I stuck these people and like, I need to learn what you're doing because I really need to help my patients. What was interesting is I took a, his boot camp, right? So it's a four hour uh, per week for four weeks. He's like a group of 12 of us. And of course he was in Maui. This just happened last summer during COVID. And I just like just absorbed it all. And I was so fascinated. I got to interview him here as well. And just, I actually draw out, you know, his behavior model and showing how those behaviors have to have the motivation, the ability and the prompt to actually occur. Mm. And that's actually mm. been really powerful for patients too, to just understand, understand behavior design, understand habits to understand. Mm. And so they understand using, you know, uh, Judd Brewer stuff on understanding you can halt the mo for that moment and still decide. So yeah, it's, I think that's great. And I, and then you're bringing in the element too of the, I call them Franken foods personally. So. <laughs> oh, the judge, you know, I wrote about, I wrote about, you know, that came from, mm. I wrote about one of the teenagers who sued McDonald's for making them overweight in the beginning mm. of the book. And the judge in the case was so struck by the case. He, he started describing these foods as Franken foods. We don't mm -hmm. really kind of know all that's going on in them. Hmm. Yep, absolutely. 100%. Wow. Well, thank you. Michael, for so much, I almost said Mr. Monster. <laughs> Michael, um, but I really appreciate your time and thank you for, you know, taking a stand when it's, it's, you know, always a popular thing to do, but there are people like me who are rooting you on. And I just so appreciate your work and you just, you know, you're, you're doing work that we don't have access to until we can read it and you put it in a place where we can. Oh, it's so engaging. That. I mean, that's, that's, that's far too much. I mean, I'm a journalist and that the, the best we can really do is sort of try to level the playing field mm. for people and just sort of give them information to make decisions. I mean, you are doing the real work. So thank you so much for what you do. Oh, well, I tell you, it was such a delight to meet you. And I'm, again, like I said, I've been a fan for so long and I really appreciate you. And I, I can't wait to see where the book soars to. And um, just thank you again for all that you do. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And I hope you enjoyed that interview. And if you could, please hit the subscribe button and leave us a rating on whatever platform that you're listening to this podcast. We really appreciate the feedback. In addition to this, I did want to let you know that we actually do video recordings of all of our interviews. And if you'd rather watch them, you can check out our YouTube channel at Healthy Human Revolution. There we also have other resources for you. One in particular I'm really excited about is called The Doctor's Inn. That's where I actually answer questions from the audience and do tons of topics like cholesterol, hypertension, diabetes, and just things to help you stay well. So check it out and also don't forget the HealthyHumanRevolution.com website where you have all the resources you need to actually start and sustain a healthy whole food plant-based diet.